Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. It's Wednesday, November 3rd, 2021. This is Shannon, and tonight I'm here with Brooke and Stacy, and we are doing, I think this is the third retellings episode that the podcast has done. So we are back to tell you about some more fantastic reimaginings of all sorts of fairy tales and classic fiction. So I'm going to move into the housekeeping information. Then Brooke will start us off, followed by Stacy, and I will, of course, end the round. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook by searching Book Bistro Podcast. You can always post just on the Book Bistro timeline. Some of you have done that. I'm always so happy to see when you've published posts there. You can join our Facebook listener group where you can chat with us as well as with other podcast listeners. You can keep an eye on some of what we're reading. We usually update you each Wednesday with a look at our current reads. If you'd like to get a hold of us and social media is not really your thing, you can email us. That address is thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. So my first book tonight is Lost in the Never Woods by Aidan Thomas. And this is a retelling of Peter Pan. So our main character's name is Wendy. And five years prior, her and her two brothers had gone missing in the woods. And about six months later, only she came back. So she's in senior high school now. And she's driving along one night. And something just like jumps over her car. She finds this, like, she's like, hits something. And then she stops and she finds this boy um, laying on the side of the road. He's injured and she takes him to the hospital to get checked. So he lets her know that his name is Peter. And she's really shocked because he looks like a boy that she must know because she feels like this is a boy that are, that's appearing in my drawings and in my dreams and there's just something about him as they get to know each other she learns that peter is trying to find his shadow and that there's other children that are going missing and that if she doesn't do something to help him locate his shadow that more children are going to go missing and that she's not going to ever be able to find her brothers. So if you want to know what happens, then you will have to check out Lost in the Never Woods by Aidan Thomas. I really, really like Aidan Thomas. Um, Cemetery Boys, which was his first book, was like one of the best things I read in 2020. I really, really liked Cemetery Boys. So I love retellings. They are my favorite thing. Um, and I am like a, like a Google stalker. I, I search my favorite uh, retelling tropes at least once a month, if not more often. And so when I found out that there was going to be a new Phantom of the Opera retelling coming out a couple months ago, I screamed and twirled. And told Shannon that I wanted to talk about it for August Picks. And then read it the day that it was released. And I'm just so happy that Retellings is happening right now. Because it is the week after I saw Phantom of the Opera on Broadway in New York as a birthday gift. And I am talking to you, I know. And tonight I'm talking to you about Phantom Heart. Phantom Heart number one by Kelly Craig. This book was amazing. It's about Stephanie. She's 17. She is living in a house 
a mansion that her father is renovating to flip. He's a house flipper. And they've they've moved many, many times over the last several years. It's just Stephanie, her father, and her six-year-old sister, Charlie. And so every few months, they move to a new house, a new school, as her father, you know, renovates and flips these houses. And there's just something different about this mansion that they are in. It just has this sort of malevolent feeling to it. And Charlie keeps insisting that she sees a masked man coming out of her closet and in other places around the house and that the house is haunted. And Stephanie is a very pragmatic young woman. Um, She's had to grow up a little earlier than your average teenage girl to help in the raising of her younger sister. Um, Her mother is no longer alive. And so she's had to step into the role of caretaker um, more than average. And so she kind of listens to Charlie and is kind of like, yeah, whatever. And then at school, in her new school, there's this very charming boy named Lucas, who is part of a paranormal um, investigation club, who is very interested in the house that she's living in as well, he and his friends. And so Stephanie at first thinks that Lucas is a creeper because he's following her around. And I also sort of felt as though Lucas was a bit of a creeper um, because of the role that he plays in this book. And then we have back in the house, we have this shadowy masked figure who sort of ducks in and out with sort of shady motives, but he is desperate for Stephanie to start seeing him for reasons that I will not divulge. And as time passes, Stephanie begins to be able to see this masked man um, that calls himself Eric and is from a different time, a different century, and somehow just keeps showing up in her dreams and is just sort of like forcing her to try to solve some sort of mysteries and to get more sort of embroiled in the history of this home where she is living. So in her day-to-day waking world, she's getting closer to Lucas while at night and in her dreams, she can't stop thinking about Eric. And actually, I'm not going to tell you anything else about this book. I'm going to tell you that this is one of the cleverest phantom retellings I have ever read. There's some really interesting Egyptian mythology woven throughout. Um, There is just some really wonderful world building and characterizations. It gives you enough phantom to keep the most avid of phantom fans named Stacy happy. And yet (laughs) it's, there's a fresh and interesting spin that makes this book unique and lovely on its own merit. And there will be, um, there will be a sequel coming out at some point. I hope it doesn't make us wait as long as this one did. So this is Phantom Heart, Phantom Heart number one by Kelly Craig. And I'm sorry that I'm keeping a lot of this vague, but if I give too much of the plot away, you'll be so sad. I want you to learn the magic of this book for yourselves. For me, it was a solid, solid five-star read. And I don't dole out five-star reads for phantom retellings like ever. You can ask Shannon. She'll tell you. It's true. Yeah. I really, really need to read this. All right. So I am moving away from sort of fairy tale-esque retellings that Brooke gave us with Peter Pan and sort of creepy old houses that Stacy gave us with Phantom. And we are now going to talk about Incense and Sensibility, The Rajes, book three by Sonali Dev. So this is, if you couldn't tell from the title, um, a take on Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. This is the third in a series of Jane Austen retellings that Dev has done um, the other two. I've read the first one. I've not read the second one yet, but I do really want to. So this is the story of Yash, and Yash is just about to be elected governor. Um, his, his campaign is going really well. He is the first Indian American to ever run for governor in the state of California, 
And there's been, you know, some some difficulties that he's faced, but he feels like he's in a good place. Um, he has a really good team working on his campaign, and he just, you know, pretty much is feeling good about the way things stand. But he's at a rally talking to potential voters, and something happens. It is a hate crime. Someone tries to shoot him, and instead of hitting him, um, they end up shooting his bodyguard and now this has thrown Yash's like whole existence into turmoil as you might imagine. So he really doesn't know what he needs to do now like there's a part of him that really wants to retreat and just you know spend time like with his family and the family of his bodyguard who is um, very severely injured by the shooting and he really just doesn't know, you know, what, what the right thing is. Like, should he step away from the campaign trail? Would that be giving in to like the violence and kind of what people want when they look at him and think that he's not someone that should be representing them in, in government? But he decides that that is not necessarily the right thing to do and that he should keep pushing hard to be elected. But when he tries to go back on the campaign trail, he begins to deal with really severe anxiety. And for someone like Yash, who has been most of his life in really, really firm control of his feelings, like his whole kind of mantra is if he can control his feelings, he can control the world. I'm not sure how that works. Um, like me controlling my feelings does not seem to influence the world in any <laughs> major way. So I'm not sure how that works. But this is the thing that he believes. So he doesn't necessarily want to get traditional therapy. He doesn't want anything to get out, um, you know, that he's having a mental health struggle. Because as we know, here in America, we do not always look kindly on those who deal with mental health issues. So he decides that the best thing to do is to seek the help of India, who is the best friend of his sister. And India is a yoga teacher. Um, she is one of the leading life coaches in the Bay Area. Um, she knows a lot about managing stress. And she also fell in love with Yash like 10 years ago. And they had an encounter that made her think that maybe there would be more between them. But for reasons that I can't go into now, um, they, they were separated. And now as Yash is coming to India, asking for help, um, he's kind of having to confront this thing that happened between them in, in both of their pasts. India is dealing with some issues, um, involving her own family and kind of everything that she's worked for is at stake. And along with this, of course, she is dealing with, you know, helping, helping Yash and kind of figuring out how she's going to reconcile the past and the present. Sonali Dev does a phenomenal job bringing every aspect of her character's li like lives into such vivid detail. You feel like you're actually living through what these characters are experiencing. And I know that some people say that her books are kind of long and draggy. And yet I don't, I don't find them to be that way. I thought this one was so, so well done. Um, you can totally empathize with both the main characters for everything that they're going through. Um, you don't read the book and feel like frustrated by kind of ridiculous, like misunderstandings or miscommunications. I just think she brings people to life in a way that makes them feel authentic and it makes it really easy for you to sort of identify with them. Um, I could go on and on about this book, but I won't. I will just say, if you haven't read the others in the series, that's totally fine. You will see cameos from characters of previous books, but it won't detract from your overall enjoyment of the novel. So this is Incense and Sensibility, The Rajes, book three by Sonali Dev. This has been on my TBR since I feel like one of our beastresses talked about this several months ago. Sarah. Um, was it Sarah? Mm -hmm. And 
I should know that because that's my sister. <laughs> but um, that's I've it's been on my radar. This whole series, like Pride, Prejudice, and Other Flavors, like all these books have been on my radar, and for some reason, I just haven't gotten to them yet. So my next book tonight is A Ruin of Roses, okay. deliciously dark fairy tales, book one by K.F. Breen. So our main character's name is Finley, and her, where she lives has been cursed by a, they call him the Mad King, and we find out that the reason he did it, like the reasoning behind it is for revenge. And I'm not going to tell, I'm not going to give away like who he's getting this revenge on, but we do find out that the King is dead. We don't actually know how he died. Um, But Finley, her little like village, the people are, so her people are shifters who aren't able to connect with their shifter side. Like they're not able to become like to shift at all. And as a result, a lot of people are dying. So Finley goes into the forbidden forest and she gets these plants that are able to, she turns it into like some kind of potion that's able to relieve the people at least a little bit so that they're able to live longer. She hasn't been able to discover a cure for what ails them, but she's able to at least um, cut down the suffering. So she's doing that and she's discovered by the beast and his name is Nifan and he is a dragon shifter. And the relationship between them I found really interesting because it was witty. Um, it was, it was very, it was sexy, but also very erotic and smutty. Like I, I was telling Shannon and Stacy that this is actually one of the most, probably the most smutty books I've ever read, which is saying a lot, but because I've read a lot these days. But I love, love, love Breen's humor. And like, she gives you a warning that just so you know, I've been let off my leash, so be prepared. And I would honestly say, like, definitely be prepared. I can't give you too much of the story because I, I don't want to give away too much. But as I said, like, the humor in this book is hilarious. There was times when we'd be all like, all like we feel how it would be like a sexy time as Stacy calls them and then it would go right into like some witty banter where you'd like burst out laughing so it was it was it was a lot of fun I really enjoyed this book one warning I will give you is that it ends on a cliffhanger which is something yeah which I know is something that Natalia just definitely does not like Stacy doesn't like it. I don't think Sarah likes it. And <laughs> I don't love it, but I don't think there's going to be a big like space between this one and the next one. So I'm not too. No, it comes out on the 12th. Yeah. So there oh. you go. Yes. Very soon. Yeah. I'm definitely looking forward to seeing where she takes this. So this is A Ruin of Roses. Deliciously Dark Fairy Tales, book one by K.F. Breen. And I'm going to give credit to Stacy. She is the one that told me that this was coming out because she knows that I really like K.F. Breen. So she wanted me to know that this was coming out. So I'm pretty excited. I love her group on Facebook and that's where I found it. And I told Brooke, I said, Brooke, you got to join this group right away. Um, and so we got all these teasers for Ruin of Roses before it came out. And I was so excited when I found out that she was going to do a Beauty and the Beast retelling. And I, I have it on my TBR. I waited for it to come to audio because I prefer reading an audio to ebook. Um, And I'm super excited, but I was waiting till the second one came out because I, I don't love cliffhangers. They get me a little upset. So is it out in audio now or no? 
Um, A Ruin of Roses just came out. I want to say like last week in audio. Okay. So I am going to keep the Beauty and the Beast vibe going here. And I'm going to talk about a book that I've been wanting to read for a couple months now. And I finally got the reason when I knew we were going to do the retellings episode. So I just discovered Anna Gare and this is my first book by her, but not the last. So this is Bitterburn Gothic Fairy Tales, number one by Anna Gare. This book is about Amara. Amara lives in a town where every year the townspeople pay a tithe of food to the beast that lives in the keep at the end of the village up in the mountains because they think they need to pay this tithe in order for his favor. But every year, winter gets just a little longer and the growing season gets just a little shorter until by the time Amara is in her early 20s, winter winter is about 10 months a year and the village has no tithe that they can send to Bitterburn to the beast. And so Amara decides that enough is enough and that she is going to go and she's going to confront this beast because, you know, she's going to sacrifice herself. She has two young half-sisters that are twins, Millie and Tilly, and she wants them to grow up, right? And she wants them to grow up in a world where, you know, it's not eternal winter. And she thinks she's just going to go there. She doesn't have much of a life in the village. She's not happy She's lost the love of her life. Um, and it's just dark and frozen misery. So she is going to leave her father's house, be one less mouth to feed, and she's going to go confront that beast and give him what for. So she rides up to Bitterburn, and no one is more shocked than she when the portcullis on the gate rises, allowing her entrance into the frozen keep where there are all these ice sculptures of the people who went before her, who the keep did not deem acceptable to enter there. But Amara is shocked when she goes inside into the kitchen and finds that the beast has not, in fact, been eating the food that the villagers have sent. Some of it has rotted away, but he has like full stores of like flour and grain and beans that he's just not eating. So Amara decides that day she's just going to start by cleaning the kitchen and she's going to start cooking and maybe she'll see the beast and maybe she won't, but she's freaking hungry and there's all this food for the taking. She's going to make herself comfortable at Bitterburn. And so a couple days passed and passed and she then starts talking to the beast in the shadows who does not allow himself to be seen. And instead of being this combative creature, he speaks to her out of loneliness and his desire to connect with someone. And soon they're sharing meals together daily, but she never sees him because he sits behind her at the table and she sits with her back to him so that they can have conversations and he cannot be seen. And soon they're reading books in the library, you know, with, with her, like in the, with him in the shadows. And, and this keep is kind of like this magical place that grants wishes, like, She wishes for goats so she can make cheese and milk and then goats appear in the keep, but it's a fickle place. And the keep can be kind of capricious because it might grant your wishes, but then it may not be exactly in the style that you expected. And as she, as Amara gets to know the beast who I'm so sorry, friends, but I'm not going to say his name because I am going to butcher it. I it's spelled N J A L. So If you can pronounce that, go right ahead, but I'm having some trouble. Um, So as Amara gets to know him, she's more and more intrigued by him and attracted to him, to his voice and his presence and the delicious way that he smells, the kindness that he shows. And she starts having some pretty sexy fantasies about the man who inhabits Bitterburn Keep. And as she's there and reading the books in the amazing library and getting to know the beast and cleaning up the castle, 
she begins to sort of become aware of the fact that she has magic and something about being at the castle is expanding her understanding of how she can use her magic. And so she begins researching ways that she can break the curse on the beast because once the curse is broken, it'll also end the eternal winter that's happening down in her village. This book is lovely. Um, it's, it's only 210 pages, so it's shorter than I typically read. Um, but it was beautifully written with this lovely friendship that develops between Amara and her beast. Um, it's about magic and friendship and learning to trust it's about a beast with sort of a heart of gold, a kind of cinnamon roll hero. Um, and then the sexy times are lovely, very um, filled with consent. Um, this did put some readers off in the reviews. They didn't like how much um, both the hero and the heroine checked in with each other to make sure things they were doing were um, okay and pleasurable. And I found that to be actually one of the nicest aspects of the story, all of the really great um, consent that happened throughout it. And um, I will say, because it is a shorter story, because it is a shorter book, I do feel as though um, the exploration of her magic wasn't given enough page time for me to really understand how she sort of figured out like how to use the magic that she had. But in spite of that, it was a delightful book and a really lovely introduction to Anne Aguirre's writing. So I'm really excited to be able to um, read a lot of her backlist. And this was just a really lovely Beauty and the Beast retelling with all of our favorite elements, except for there was no talking teapot or anything like that. But oh, with the library, no singing, candlesticks. No, no singing candlesticks, but there was the the big crumbling keep with the East Wing. And um, although I think in the Disney, it's the West Wing, they can't go in. But yes, um, but there was an area that was off limits. There was the beautiful library. And it was just a really, really lovely book. And the story was told very well. So this is Bitterburn Gothic Fairy Tales, book one by Anna Garay. And go forth and read if you need a little lovely treat of a book. Hooray. I, am, I really I am going like to be getting this book. Yeah, it's great. It's um her name is spelled um Anne does not have an E and her last name is spelled A-G-U-I-R-R-E for people who are trying to look her up. It took me a minute to find her. And bitter burn is one word. So it's pretty common here. Um in the US, if you grew up when I did, so in the like 80s and 90s, that when you got to be in about sixth or seventh grade, you had to read The Outsiders in school. Like I know a lot of people who came to that book um, through school. And it's been a book that, you know, I haven't reread it as an adult, and I don't know that I will, but it's kind of one of those very influential things that I read in my childhood that has stayed with me all these years later. And so I was really excited to learn that this year we are blessed with a feminist retelling of The Outsiders. And this is Bad Girls Never Say Die by Jennifer Matthew. If this name sounds familiar to you, um, it may be because several years ago, Matthew wrote a book called Moxie, which um, talked a lot about feminine power and consent and really understanding what it is to be a feminist in a world where that's not always well thought of. So this takes place in 1964 and our main character is a young girl named Evie. And Evie is 14. She's younger than her friends. Um, most of her friends are like seniors in high school. And Evie is really, really happy that she's been accepted by this group of older girls. Now, Evie's family, not quite so happy. Um, her grandmother really worries that Evie is heading down the wrong path. And, you know, it's kind of possible that she is. She cuts school. 
Um, you know, she, she smokes, she drinks sometimes. It's not necessarily a great thing. But Evie feels secure in her friendships. And one of the best things about the friendships between these girls is their loyalty to one another, um, their ability to have each other's backs, even when circumstances don't 100% make sense. So one night they go to a drive-in and Evie is separated from them. She walks off to the bathroom and on her way back, um, someone attempts to sexually assault her. And she is saved by Diane, who is a quote unquote good girl. So from the other side of town, someone that really is not likely to have much to do with Evie under normal circumstances. Um, As she's defending Evie, Diane inadvertently kills the boy who was attempting to assault her. And this is not what anyone you know, wanted to have happen. So now Diane and Evie are running from the scene of this crime. They don't know what to do. What they do know is that this was a really like up and coming young man. And so people are not going to A, take Evie's word that you know he was trying to assault her and that Diane basically killed him in Evie's defense, um, and B, you know, girls in general just aren't going to be very believable witnesses, especially in 1964. Um, I think, you know, we see some progress in that now, but not nearly as much as there should be. So they leave the drive-in, and they don't really know what to do. Evie feels very grateful to Diane, but she's also really torn by, like, how much loyalty should she feel to this girl who saved her, whose life seems so different from anything that Evie has ever known? You know, always there's been this divide between Evie's side of town and the other side of town where people are living more privileged, affluent lives. And so she doesn't really know how to cross those boundaries. Um, This is a book that examines class. It also examines the roles of women Um, and what those roles looked like in the 1960s. And, you know, we like to think that we've made a lot of progress. And I think in some ways we have, but in a lot lot of ways we haven't. And these, the things that go on here sort of illustrate that in ways that are are hard to look away from. Um, There is some talk of sexual assault here. So if that's triggering to you, you might want to give this a pass for now. But if you love the outsiders, but you're looking for something that is more um, feminine focused, I highly recommend this. It is Bad Girls Never Say Die by Jennifer Matthew. That sounds really good. I enjoyed it. It's, it's short, um, probably a similar length to, to Bitter Burn, um, so it doesn't necessarily go into you know huge amounts of detail I think ideally it could have been a little bit longer and you know kind of filled in some gaps but it was very very well written and I'm glad that I picked it up so my next book tonight is The King of Infinite Space by Lindsay Fay and this is a queer retelling of Hamlet set in modern New York City. So our main character's name is Benjamin Bain, and he is a, he's a physicist. And our other main characters, just because it, to kind of describe how they fit together with him, we've got Horatio, who is a biographer. Um, he's really good friends with Ben. And then we've got Leah. And she is Ben's ex-fiance. So Ben's father um, has been found dead. And the police think that he committed suicide. But Ben isn't really sure that's the case. So his father owns um, a Broadway theater and 
this has kind of like been his life. So he's just not sure where, like what he wants to do. Where is he going to go from here? While this is happening, his mom gets together with his uncle, his father's brother, and they get married. So you can kind of see the link between um, this book and Hamlet. So Ben is pretty sure his uncle did it. And he's just going through a really, really rough period of time. So he calls Horatio and Horatio being the loyal friend he is, and also being somewhat in love with Ben, he quickly takes off from London where he's living and returns to New York City to come be with Ben. So they're together trying to discover like what happened to Ben's father. And as I also said, there another character's name is Leah. And she has been taken under the wing of three florists who we later find out um, know magic. And there's some special things that they do to the, uh, the floral arrangements that they make. And so the life that Leah is living is going to kind of collide with what's happening with Ben and Horatio. So if you want to know more, then you are going to have to check out The King of Infinite Space by Lindsay Fay. Like this book was so good. Like I will honestly say like, I just love the way that Lindsay Fay writes. I just, I find her writing is just very poetic and very like, you can feel the love and emotion. I don't know if you noticed that, Shannon, but I definitely love her writing. I am not a huge Shakespeare person. And so I don't always read um, a lot of Shakespeare retellings. Like there are a couple of Romeo and Juliet retellings that have come out this year um, that I haven't read. But this one I, I might have to, uh, to try out. Whenever anybody mentions anything Hamlet... I think of the movie from the 90s where Glenn Close is playing um, the mother who marries the uncle. And she says this line about, thou hath cleft my heart in twain. And it's my favorite line. Whenever <laughs> anything's going wrong in my life, I say, my heart is cleft in twain. And that's not what this is about at all. But like, I just... It's, it's like the one thing that I remember about Hamlet, that and the skull. And that's all I remember. She did a really good job of putting some quotes from Shakespeare, but also very much she made the book her own. Like it, it was nice. a very different take on Hamlet. So I would like to um, stick with New York City, if that's okay. Oh, yeah. Because as I said, I just visited New York City last week for the first time and it was a revelation. And I wish I would have known a little bit more about the burlesque scene prior to my visit, because reading the book that I just did was an amazing education on New York City burlesque. And what I'm talking about is A Certain Appeal by Vanessa King. This is a contemporary pride and prejudice retelling and full disclosure. I'm not like um, someone who like jumps up and down every time a new pride and prejudice book comes out, which feels like once a week, there's a new <laughs> retelling, but um, this really, um, this really caught my interest because it is contemporary. It takes place in New York city and the whole burlesque thing, which I knew nothing about. I thought burlesque was something that happened like back in the 20s. I didn't know that there was still a burlesque scene. This book is about Liz Bennett. And Liz Bennett is a, she's a personal assistant by day in New York City. Um, after being betrayed in a former career, she's moved on to um, a whole different life in New York. 
And by day, she's an executive assistant. But by night, she is a stage kitten for um, one of the premier burlesque venues in New York City. And so through the last two years, Liz Bennett, who goes by many names, she's called Lizard by her cousin. She's called Bennett by her best friend, Jane. And and he is the one that helped her to kind of get into the burlesque scene. And she is called Kitten, which is short for Kitten Caboodle, which is her stage name when she is at the burlesque club. I love that Kitten Caboodle. I think it's amazing. And so what she does is she sort of like picks up the discarded um, clothing between acts and then comes on stage and just sort of does some filler things between the bigger burlesque acts. And what she has found in this burlesque club is found family that just sort of has helped her to raise out of her depression over the betrayal that she endured a few years ago um, out in LA. And so one night she's at the club and she's going around the room and, you know, talking with, with different patrons of the club and she's doing her, her stick up on stage and she's picking up thrown garters and boas and things. And she locks eyes with this man across the room. And she is completely bowled over by him. She's turned on. She thinks he's the most handsome thing she's ever seen. She just feels this instant electric chemistry. So she goes over to this gorgeous man and his sweet, sweet blonde male companion and starts flirting. And she thinks, she thinks that he's flirting back with her. And there's just like all this connection until there's not. And she walks away and she overhears this man telling his friend that she was tolerable. And that sort of breaks her heart a little bit because she really felt like there was a connection there. But the issue is his friend Charles has fallen into deep like with her close friend and roommate Jane. And the two men begin this amazing relationship full of romance and beautiful grand gestures. And because of that, Bennett is tossed quite often into the orbit of the man who called her tolerable, the wealth manager, Will Darcy. And with each encounter that they have, sparks fly, but she's confused by him and by his response to her. And then, you know, if, as if that's not enough going on, a charming young man comes along and tells her some things about Will Darcy that makes her question everything she thinks she's beginning to learn about him. And so she has to decide what to believe. And as all this is happening, she finds out that her beloved burlesque club is um, in jeopardy and that all of her found family may no longer have a place to perform. And so all these things are happening and Liz Bennett has to figure out who to trust and what is true. This book is just a complete delight from first page to last. It's a book that embraces body positivity um, and loving different style, different sizes and shapes. It's a book that, um, talks about love in many forms, embraces, um, you know, people with different sexual orientations. Um, It's a book that helps to, helps a group of young people to kind of find who they are and how to be proud of who they are. The found family element of this book is so gorgeous. 
And there is so much pride and prejudice in this book from the original that is put in this really interesting sort of gaudy, glittering, welcoming world of New York City burlesque. And it is one of the most surprisingly delightful things I have read in a long time. I recommend it for Pride and Prejudice fans or for the more casual of us who enjoy aspects of the story. Um, This book, again, is called A Certain Appeal, and it's by Vanessa King. And I think everyone should go forth and read it because it is an absolute treat. I'm so glad that this has come out and sort of joined the ranks of the Pride and Prejudice retellings. Um, I think it sounds like unique enough to sort of grab the attention of people who perhaps aren't really into Pride and Prejudice on a normal day. And for those of us who read audio, it's read by the amazing Julia Whelan. So um, yeah, it's just another element of fantasticness. All right. So my next book has something in common with Brooks. Um, Queer Hamlet retelling. I have a queer modern Anastasia retelling. Oh, Anastasia. Yes. So this is How to Find a Princess, Runaway Royals, book two by Alyssa Cole. And this is a spinoff series from her Reluctant Royals series, um, which I've read the first book in that series. And I moved into this one. I did not have any trouble keeping track of the characters. Um, I think obviously if you read the whole thing, if you finish up, you know, the Reluctant Royals series and then read the first Runaway Royals book, you will have a better understanding of like some aspects of the plot. But as far as appreciating what's going on here, um, I didn't have any trouble, even though I did read this out of order. So this is the story of Makeda Hicks. And Makeda has just lost her job and doesn't really know what to do. She's headed back home to her grandmother's bed and breakfast, and she's going to be working there, staying there. And it's not really her idea of, you know, how she wants to spend her life, but she's also really glad that it's an option she has since her job at this grocery store kind of fell through. But one thing that she is not in the mood for is this constant rehashing of this fling that her grandmother supposedly had years ago with the prince of a small country. And it's kind of one of those things that's like family lore. You know, people keep talking about this and Makeda's mother is really obsessed with the idea of being royalty. And this caused a lot of problems for Makeda growing up. So she just has no patience for all this talk of royalty And she doesn't like it whenever it's brought up. So imagine how much she doesn't like it when someone comes into the bed and breakfast and they are looking for her because they are looking for the lost heir of this this country. And they think that Nikita could be that person. So she Uh wants nothing to do with this. Nothing. But there's a whole lot of pressure for her um, from her grandmother, from her mother. Um, People really want her to kind of go forth and investigate this. So the woman who came to track her down, um, her name is Bethnaria, and she's working for this kind of world organization that investigates monarchies and they, they locate lost heirs. They do a bunch of research into all the things that go into keeping a monarchy alive. And Bethnaria is, as she puts it, too much. Like she's she's a lot for most people. Um, She reminds me, it doesn't come out and and say this. um, And the word is escaping me. Um, It it doesn't like explicitly say it. But you kind of get the impression that she deals with perhaps some ADHD. um, And she's just like, her thoughts are always like running a million miles a minute. And she kind of blurts things out that make people uncomfortable. 
Um, but she has this deep and abiding loyalty to her family. And her family is linked very closely to the royal family. Um, her grandmother was one of the queen's guards. And it is sort of on her watch that this heir was, was lost. And so in bringing the lost heir home, Vesnaria hopes to, A, kind of clean up her grandmother's reputation and also kind of, you know, bring some happiness to her grandmother. Like if her grandmother knows that this lost heir has been reunited with the monarchy, like maybe that will take away some of the stress that she knows that her grandmother's been dealing with. Um, Makeda is not up for this and she does everything she can to keep Vesnaria at arm's length. But as you can imagine, since this is a romance, like this does not work. And eventually Makeda does um, go in search of the truth regarding whether she is or isn't this lost heiress. Um, this is a lot of fun. Like if you know the story of Anastasia, you can pick out, you know, small kind of Easter eggs that are hidden within the story just to kind of make you smile when you find them. But kind of like what Stacy was saying about her last book, it does stand on its own very well. And so even if you're not a huge Anastasia fan, this is just a delightful book from start to finish. I love the interplay between our two heroines. Um, I'm always looking for good queer romances um, for adults, especially those featuring two women. Um, I feel like we have a lot of male-male romance um, out there now, but not so much between two women. So I was really excited to see this. This, once again, is How to Find a Princess, Runaway Royals, book two by Alyssa Cole. I have the first one on my TBR, The Princess of Derry. Oh, yes, that's the first uh, Reluctant Royals. I love that one. So my last book is A Spindle Splintered, Fractured Fairy Tales by Alex E. Harrow. And this is a retelling of Sleeping Beauty. So our main character's name is Zinnia, and Zinnia has a terminal illness caused by an industrial accident. Um, and she's not really expected to live past the age of 21. So for her 21st birthday, her friend Charm plans a, a Sleeping Beauty themed birthday party. Um, so she's got it taking part in a tower. She has the, the spinning wheel. Like she's got everything. Like she's got it all taken care of. So Wanting to go along with all this, Zinnia touches her finger to the splinter on the spinning wheel. And she is teleported to, to another world. She, and she, she meets Primrose. And Primrose is very much the typical princess. Um, she is also dealing with a curse that um, she's trying to overcome. So she is also another Sleeping Beauty. Uh, so she's like the real Sleeping Beauty kind of thing. And you get to see different ways of how the curse affects her and how she's trying to push it away and trying to not give in. So together, Zinnia and Primrose, they decide that they are, they're not going to just give in. They're not going to give in to their upcoming deaths. They're, they're going to be, they're going to keep on like pushing. So I really liked the way that Harrow was able to take the whole theme of don't be a damsel in distress and that you need to like work towards finding a solution and saving yourself. 
So I'm not going to give up too much more because this book is actually really short. It's a new novella, but it was so well done. And the next book comes out next year and Zinnia appears in that next book. So I'm pretty excited to see like where, like, where does she take all this? So if you want a really, I thought it was pretty unique um, take on the Sleeping Beauty story, then I would check out a spindle splintered fractured fairy tales book one by Alex E. Harrow. And this is actually the first book that I've read of hers. And I quite liked it. I love the whole, like you get teleported into another world. (laughs) Like that's pretty cool. Yeah. Like, so she like, she puts her finger in the thing and then a bead of blood comes and then all of a sudden um, she is no longer with, she's no longer with charm. (laughs) <laughs> and she I... shows up in and she wakes up in Primrose's room Whoa, it's kind of crazy <laughs> I feel really proud of you that you were able to say that title and series without stumbling once it sort of oh, takes <laughs> some vocal dexterity for you to be able to say that um, I feel like just the name alone is enough practice. reason you had to practice, had to practice. Yeah. <laughs> all right So for my last book, I really struggled because I love retellings and I was like all over the place because I wanted Hades and Persephone. I wanted like all these things and I just couldn't settle in to something. And I've been planning this episode for a while. Well, not planning it, but, you know, planning my books for it for a while because I love retellings. And like I said, I am constantly like I'm a nerd. I'm always on Google writing like Phantom of the Opera retellings, Beauty and the Beast retellings, you know, or Persephone and Hades. Like I love all those. And I read a book last weekend um, that was 541 pages that was supposed to be a Beauty and the Beast retelling. And while I loved it and we'll find an episode where I can talk about it, it was not. And so full disclosure, the last book I'm going to talk about, I haven't finished yet, (laughs) Um, but it is really good. And I am going to finish it. It's called Beauty of the Beast by Rachel L. Demeter. And it came out in 2017. And it's the first in a uh, fairy tale retelling series. But it's the last thing that I can find by her that's been published. So I'm not really sure um, what went on there. Um, I can't find any other of the fairy tale books. But having said that, this book was described as basically a Beauty and the Beast retelling with hints of the Phantom of the Opera, which as we all know, is like my ultimate catnip. So I dove upon this book. This book is about, it's, it's, a, um, it's a darker historical romance retelling of Beauty and the Beast. So there's no magic in it um, and there is some violence. And so if you're someone that, need con- that needs content warnings, um, there is some sexual assault that happens by the villain on the page. Having said that, this book is about Prince Adam Delacroix. And he is the king, or he is the prince of this kingdom called something like Demrov that I've never heard of. It's like an island kingdom near France. So in this mythical kingdom um, in the 1800s. And when he was 11, he witnessed the massacre of his entire family. And the castle was um, violently um, sort of infiltrated and burned. And he was basically left for dead in the burning castle. 25 years later, we meet Miss Mademoiselle Isabel Rose, who um, is as delightful as her name implies. And she is living with her father in their cottage. Her father is pretty ill, um, just has a lot of health problems and is going blind as a result of cataracts and isn't doing the greatest. Um, And from his second marriage, He has these two completely repugnant um, younger daughters who you just kind of want to smack in the face. They're just gross. And so they're all living in this cottage and Isabel is being courted by this odious Gaston type creature named Raphael, um, who is some sort of vicomte in the village and who is just completely disgusting and depraved and is um, taking advantage of her father's lack of vision to grope her during his visits to the cottage. No, no. 
and is holding threats about her father over her head. So that part of the book is very unpleasant. However, Isabel and her father are in a snowstorm and they are trying to find shelter and stumble across this abandoned castle and go inside as one does, especially in a Beauty and the Beast retelling. And you can imagine that um, Prince Adam Delacroix, who has been alone for 25 years, is not overjoyed to have his, um, his home invaded. And for a reason that I do not know, decides to keep her gravely ill father at his castle. So, of course, the noble Isabel offers to stay in his stead. And... Thus begins this beautiful unfurling of a friendship where this very disfigured, broken man who's been alone for a very long time kind of rediscovers his humanity because of the friendship and eventual love of Miss Isabel Rose. And, you know, as they're falling in love, there's just a dark shadow of the terrible, terrible Raphael from her, her life outside the castle who is going to, you know, try to make things challenging for them. And I really like the writing style so far. Um, I'm, I'm enjoying the book very much. It definitely has the vibes of both Beauty and the Beast and Phantom. So it's, it's everything good. Um, I haven't finished it yet. Like I said, full disclosure, but I'm very much enjoying it. And it, it really, it, it's nice to read a book that sort of gives you the Beauty and the Beast parameters without, the magic and the dancing candlesticks, although I do love them. And, um, you know, the, the singing teapot and everything, or like a magical castle. It's just a very, very broken man who has lost his legacy, who's trying to figure out how to make it in a world that feels very unwelcoming and a woman who feels as though she doesn't belong and how these two broken souls come together. So this again is Beauty of the Beast by Rachel L. Demeter. And when I finish it, I will let you know how it is. Awesome. This sounds great. All right. So I am finishing things off tonight with a book that I kind of read on accident. Like I picked it up for another oh, episode. I love it. And I was like, oh, wait, this would actually be perfect for retellings. And so here it is. This is The Anatomy of Desire by L.R. Dorn. This is a thriller. It is a retelling of Theodore Dreiser's An American Tragedy, which I am not super familiar with, aside from like a very basic understanding of the plot. So I cannot tell you if it is an accurate retelling necessarily. But what I can tell you, it is that it is a very, very excellently told story. So Cleo is our main character. She is a social media influencer. She grew up in a very conservative family and she always knew that she wanted something different for herself. So as a teenager, she left home and went to California to live with her uncle and hasn't really spoken to her parents since then. No one really knows a lot about who Cleo is as a person. Like they know sort of the persona that she puts out on social media, but you kind of get the impression, at least you do if you're someone that's in her sphere, aside from social media, that she keeps a lot of secrets about herself. Now, the people who follow her on social media, they are convinced that Cleo is an open book. Cleo is exactly who she portrays herself to be and the world loves her for this. So there's kind of this weird juxtaposition of this really open, honest person and this person who is, for various reasons, keeping things secret that perhaps the people in her life really you know, should be let in on. So she goes out on a boat with another young woman named Becca. And something happens between them, something that leads to Becca's death. Oh and now Cleo doesn't know what to do. She, she flees the scene and decides that she's going to go camping and just sort of pretend that none of this ever happened. Like maybe if she doesn't deal with it, like it, it will just kind of, you know, disappear. No big deal. Because, like, that as, ever happens. Yes. 
Yes. Well, and, and Cleo discovers very rapidly that indeed this does not <laughs> happen. And the police find her and she is you know, taken into custody. It's a very public thing. She is not a fan. And most of the novel is taken up with the people around Cleo trying to come to terms with what has happened. It's told in the form of like a docu-series. And so if you like books, um, especially in audio format that have that real like podcast or documentary feel, this is a perfect fit for that. Um, We get to hear from people who knew Cleo really well. We get to hear from Becca's family. Um, We hear from witnesses to like the finding of Becca's body. Um, we don't, you would think, you know, that you would get to know sort of what happened like directly from Cleo, but it doesn't really play out that way. Um, there's all kinds of, of twists and turns here that make it really hard to know what actually happened. Um, by the time the story ends, of course you do know. And I found it to be a really satisfying, um, conclusion to a really twisty story. I am definitely a fan of thrillers. And so this one worked really nicely for me. I was happy to find a retelling that didn't necessarily like focus on like romance or fantasy. Thriller retellings are kind of rare. So I'm, I'm always glad to find one. This is The Anatomy of Desire by L.R. Dorn. I downloaded this book a couple days ago. So I'm definitely oh, going to bump good. it up. Yeah, it's so, so excellent. It's a, it's a pretty quick read and audio. It was um, just over eight hours. So I sped it up. I, I got it in like under three um, and it was, it was so good. And that does it for us tonight. Thank you to Stacy and Brooke for participating in this episode and having such excellent books to recommend. Thanks, as always, goes out to Christine for all of her fantastic editing. And of course, we thank all of you for joining us each week as we talk about great books. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, It kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody.